I'm told that a man woke up one morning to the realization that he had nothing to feed his family. And so he remembered that he had an old shotgun and had only three bullets left. So he decided that he would go and hunt for some wild game for dinner. So he saw a rabbit, and he first shot at the rabbit, but missed. And then he saw a squirrel, at which he also shot, but missed. Now he's coming down to one bullet left. Going further, he saw a large, tom turkey up in a tree and decided that he was going to aim at it. But just as he was aiming at the turkey, he heard a voice saying, pray, aim, and stay focused. And so he aimed his gun at the turkey, only to realize that there was a deer below. And so he figured that um, shooting the deer made much better sense than um, shooting at the turkey. And so while he was trying to do that, the voice came a second time, pray, aim, and stay focused. And so he did, and um, prayed, aimed his gun at the turkey, shot at it, the bullet ricocheted off of the turkey, hit the deer, and the top of the gun fell off and hit a rattlesnake that was between his legs, <laughs> killed it, and the force from shooting the gun caused him to fall into the pond below, and when he got up, there were fish in all of his pockets, there was a turkey, and there was a deer to feed his family, all because he listened. He listened. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, if God has spoken, listen. If God has recorded his words in a book, search its pages with a believing heart. If you regard it as the book of God, I charge you, to study the Bible daily. Treat not the eternal God with disrespect, but delight in his word, end of quote. Today's message then is entitled, Let These Words Sink Into Your Ears. These are the very words of Jesus himself, as you will see from the passage that we're reading this morning, Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 50. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, and you remember that last week we looked at the uh, miracle that he did of um, healing this, um, this young man who was tormented by an evil spirit. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. 
For he who is least among you, among you all, I'm sorry, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. I want to say to us this morning that in God's church, the truth about Jesus must be deep in our DNA. Jesus says, let the truth of what I'm about to say to you sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now take a look at the remarkable poise and focus of Jesus. He's not distracted by all the praise and the adulation that people are giving to him as he's going from place to place and doing miraculous things. Jesus doesn't let that get to his head at all. Some people are not good at that. Some people uh, take everything to their head and they feel it's all about them and, and they, get, they get puffed up and all that stuff. Jesus is not about that. He's focused. He's focused. He's focused on the one purpose for which he came to earth. Luke tells us later in this very same chapter that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's focused, focused on his mission. And so while the crowd around him was mesmerized by all the great things that he was doing, he turned to his disciples and said to them, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, give serious attention to what I'm about to tell you. Don't let it go through one ear and come out the next. We live in a world where there is so much information coming to us on a daily basis. We are bombarded left, right, and center from, you know, with all kinds of news, social media, um, the mass media, all of that stuff is coming at us. It's very difficult to retain things these days. Jesus says, don't let it go through one ear and come through the other. Let it percolate so that it sinks deep down into your soul. Now, what words does Jesus want these disciples to let sink in? These are the words. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, Jesus did not come to earth to soak up the praises and the adulation of people. He came on a mission. He came to be delivered or to be handed over, that's what that word means, to be handed over into the hands of wicked, sinful, and cruel men. Now, who are these wicked, sinful, and cruel men that he's talking about into whose hands he will be delivered? And who will deliver him into them? Jesus is talking initially about Judas, one of his closest friends, one of his traveling companions, one who ate from the same table that he did, one who witnessed his great miracles firsthand, the one who managed his finances. Now, what do all of these things tell us? These things speak to intimacy and friendship. You don't allow anybody to travel with you unless you trust them. You don't let people eat from your table unless you know them. You don't let people ride with you or handle 
your money, your finances, unless you trust them. And yet Judas handed Jesus over rather than remain loyal to him. And you know something? If you and I are not careful, if we're not careful to listen to these words of Jesus and to let them sink deep down into our DNA, we will do the same thing as Judas did in a moment of weakness, in a moment of temptation, in a moment of distraction. Now, who did Jesus, I'm sorry, who did Judas hand Jesus over to? First, to the temple soldiers who handed him over to the Jewish high priests, who handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor, who handed him over to the Roman soldiers who were brutal executioners. Let these words sink into your ears, Jesus says. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. So for what purpose was Jesus handed over into the hands of these sinful men? First of all, to be wrongfully arrested, to be unjustly accused, to be mercilessly beaten, to be shamefully dragged through the streets, and to be brutally executed on a cross, all to pay for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the whole world. You see, what God was doing is that God had, in fact, determined that he would deliver us from our sins and from the penalty of our sins by allowing his son to be delivered into the hands of wicked, sinful, and cruel men. That was God's decision. That is how he would rescue us and redeem us. Now, what is the benefit of letting this truth sink into our DNA and the DNA of our discipleship? What is the benefit? This is the benefit because it is this truth, this truth about Jesus, and this truth only that gives us the assurance that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we need no longer fear of being judged because of our sins. Because, you see, Jesus already took care of that on the cross and with his blood. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote concerning this assurance that we now have, now that Jesus has been delivered over into the hands of sinful men. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, Jesus wants us to allow this truth to not only sink into our ears, but to sink deep into our DNA. Now, sadly, the disciples couldn't really understand it. But you and I must. Jesus was once delivered into the hands of sinful men so that he might give us a now. And you know what that now is? That now is that there is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, nobody can accuse us now. Nobody can bring any charge against us because Jesus 
took care of that on the cross. There is no condemnation because he has set us free from the law of sin and its penalty. But can I have a witness? Gary was asking for a testimony, and I really, I would not have been upset with at all, Gary. I love testimonies. Can I have a testimony of somebody who has been freed from the law of sin and death? Somebody who knows that that is their reality now. Is there anybody who would say maybe an amen to that? Yeah. He has set us free. Amen. Here's our second point. In God's church, there is no room for argument over status. Luke tells us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. I believe that the worst testimony that we as Christians can give to the world is arguing among ourselves, fighting among ourselves, arguing among ourselves, especially after the bombshell that Jesus just dropped on us. He has just said, I am going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. But that doesn't register with his disciples at all. In fact, they brush it aside and they begin arguing amongst themselves of who was the greatest. Now imagine sharing with your closest friend the news that you've just received that you only have but a few days to live. And rather than receiving some degree of consolation or sympathy or empathy or whatever, rather than crying on your shoulder or whatever, they immediately begin to argue amongst themselves of who will get you things. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine opening up yourself to somebody, maybe your children even? God forbid that that would happen to me or anyone, one of us. You're just sharing some news with them, and rather than commiserating with you, they're arguing about who is going to get your things once you're gone. Who is going to be greatest? You need compassion. Jesus needed compassion. But that's how it often is with us in the church as well. We become distracted, distracted from this truth that we just read about and this truth that we just sang about of Jesus offering up himself, being delivered over for our sins. And we begin to argue among ourselves, amongst ourselves, about Jesus' stuff. That is, that is shameful to Jesus. So that is how it is when we in the church become distracted from the truth about who Jesus is, that he came to earth for one purpose only, and that is to save the lost with his own blood. So... There's no need for squabbling among ourselves about lesser things like status and position and who is more important and who is excluded. These are lesser things. And these have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. In the church of Jesus Christ, we are all children. All of us are. Bought with the blood and the price of Jesus' own blood. We cannot receive Jesus unless we become as little children. Children who are dependent on a father. Children who forget easily. 
Children don't harbor grudges at all. They don't remember things very easily, at least little children. Maybe some of the bigger ones would, but <laughs> little children are quick to forgive. They forget easily. And I believe that is how we should be in the church of Jesus Christ. Little children must forget easily, forget the hurts that somebody caused us last week or last year. We cannot receive Jesus unless we come to him in a spirit of utter humility, entirely dependent upon him to forgive us and to free us from our sins, trusting him completely to save us, trusting him to be merciful to us and to take care of our daily needs, whether they are large or small. I believe that in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we never outgrow our children's status. You never do. That's why our relationship with God is compared to children who are utterly and completely dependent upon a father. That's why at the heart of our relationship with our Heavenly Father is this model of prayer which Jesus taught us. Luke chapter I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6. I'm reading Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Jesus teaching his disciples thus. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now notice here that Jesus assumes that you will pray. He doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. That's, a, that's an assumption. He assumes that we all are praying. He's assuming, Jesus is, that we are dependent upon God our Father. Notice that God is not a Father who discriminates. He is our Father. He is the Father of all of us. He loves us equally. I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad that God does not lo love uh, Mike McMahon more than he loves me. <laughs> He loves us equally, our Father. Notice that he's in heaven, which means that he is exalted. He's above all fathers. Fathers are a picture of who God is, but they're not perfect examples. But God is our perfect heavenly Father. He's exalted. His name is hallowed, meaning that it is holy and sacred, and so we don't take his name in vain. We don't use God's name in curse words, as some people do, because God's name is sacred. Now, if God, our Father, owns a kingdom, it means that he is the king. And if he is the king and we are his children, it means that we are subjects in his kingdom. And so we ought to pray daily for God's kingdom to come on earth and for his will to be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. When last have you prayed for God's kingdom to come? Or are you so comfortable in 
this world and its kingdoms around us, that we don't pray for God's kingdom to come. When last have you prayed for God's will to be done on earth in the same way that it is being done in heaven? Jesus says that our prayer should be like that. Pray that God would take care of our daily needs. That's important. Because God is our Father. And on a daily basis, we need God to provide for us, to take care of our needs, to forgive us, to lead us not into temptation, to deliver us from evil, because God knows there are many traps that the enemy sets for us on a daily basis. Pray that God would deliver us from them. I believe that prayer about anything at any time and under any circumstance allows us to come as children of God into the loving arms of our Father who cares for us, every one of us. And so there's no room then in God's kingdom for argument over status, over who is more important, and over who is the greatest, because we are all children of God. We are all God's children. And he calls us to pray for his will to be done on earth, even as it is being done in heaven. Now, theologian N.T. Wright, I love N.T. Wright. He has a great British accent because he's obviously from Britain. He says that the Lord's prayer was designed to change our priorities. Because you see, sometimes our priorities are not matching God's. And then there's a direct quote that I took from him. He says this, The danger with the prayer for bread is that we get there too soon. You hear what he said? We get there too soon, meaning that we are too quick to pray for our own needs, and we neglect to pray that God's will be done and that his kingdom come. Let's move on to a final point. In God's church, so we move from praying now to playing. How about that? Okay. In God's church, we play on the same team and for the same coach. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. As I was reflecting on this, I thought to myself that God's church, and this is what I'm gathering from this text, this verse as I'm reading it, that God's church is universal. God's church is multi-denominational. In other words, God's church is not limited to one denomination. I love the Wesleyan church. I grew up in it. I was born into it. I've never been a part of any other church but the Wesleyan church. Our church has a rich history, but God is not limited to our denomination. I hate to say that, but it's true. <laughs> yes. God's church is multi-denominational. God's church is in every continent and in every culture. There are, people of, there are people in God's church from every nation, every tribe, every nationality, every language. If you doubt me, hear these words from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. John writes this as he's on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled there, and God gave him a vision of what heaven would be like. And so he's writing this out of that vision. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People who look like us and people who don't look like us. God is a God of diversity. And God's church is therefore intentionally diverse. Different denominations believe differently. They worship differently. They believe differently. Their practices look very different. Some believe that women should never hold leadership positions in church. I beg to disagree. Other denominations disagree as well. Some believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. Others do not. Some believe that God predestines those who are going to go to heaven and those who are going to go to hell. Other denominations believe in free will. Some believe in the Trinity, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some believe in the oneness doctrine that only Jesus, Jesus only, they say. Some believe that no child should be aborted for any reason. Others in the church think differently. Some voted Republican in the last election. Some voted Democrat in the last election. The one thing and the one thing alone that unites God's church is the name of Jesus Christ. Because you see, all of these other differences don't really matter in the long run except, except the Trinity. Except the Trinity. Look at John. John in our text approaches Jesus and he comes with the news. Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, but we tried to stop them because they were not one of us. You know, that is like, that is like us saying, Lord, we saw someone from Park Chapel doing some great things in your name, but we tried to stop them because they belong to the wrong chapel. Because this, right, this is the right chapel. Brown's Chapel is the right chapel. <laughs> yes, the assumption that we're making when we say that, and the assumption I think John was making here was that, you know, our way is the right way. Our way is the right way. I think that's how a church develops pride. Pride. And there's nothing wrong about having pride in your church. I am very proud of my church. There's a, that's, that's healthy pride. But I think when we, when we get to the point where we feel that our way is the only way or the best way, that is, that is prideful thinking. Let's look at how Jesus responds to this kind of thinking. He says, don't ever do that. Don't stop them from doing what they're doing. For those who are not against you, they are for you. In other words, as long as you serve Jesus, you're on the same team which means you're playing for the same coach. And a coach can't coach a divided squad. It must be united. Let's hasten to the bottom line of our message this morning. If God is speaking to the church, and I believe that he is, we must listen to what he's saying. If God is speaking to the church, and he is, we must listen to what he says. And we must listen 
in a way that doesn't just allow it to come through one ear and go through the other, but we must try our very best to retain it. Now, you might not remember what Jesus says word for word. I don't think any of us will ever be able to do that. We memorize scripture, and that is important. But staying it long enough for God's word, whatever God is saying, to change us, to change us. I want to close by asking us three questions. They're not points, really. They're just questions that I want you to ponder and maybe even respond to. Here's our first question. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus? Remember that he came to give his life for you. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men for you. For your sins, have you given your life to Jesus? There are some of you who would say yes, and I celebrate that. There are some of you who can't say yes. Why don't you? Why can't you? And why don't you take a moment now, even quietly where you are, to say, Jesus, I believe that you gave your life for me. You were delivered over into the hands of sinful men for me and for my sins. I now give my life to you so that you might forgive me of my sins. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, is there anyone in our midst today who would like to give their life to Jesus? May I see your hand? Just for a few seconds more. I see that hand. Lord Jesus, we are really touched by what you did for us. It moves our very hearts as we consider what you went through for us. Lord, this was no walk in the park for you. The scriptures try their very best to describe what that was like, and yet we cannot really imagine the half of what you did in our place. We take this opportunity this morning to say thank you and to give ourselves to you either for the first time or over again. Lord, for that one hand that was raised, we thank you. We pray that you would give that person the assurance, Lord, the assurance beyond any doubt that they are your child, forgiven, loved, saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have two more questions for you, the second of which well, the first of those two and the second of the three. Have you outgrown what it means to be a child? These are not trite questions. These are questions that really need to provoke your thinking. Have you outgrown what it means to be a child? Now, notice I didn't say childish, because that would be <laughs> insulting you, and I don't in any way mean to insult you this morning, but have you outgrown what it means to be a child, someone who is dependent upon a father for his love, his protection, his mercy, his forgiveness, his direction, his leadership. 
Don't ever outgrow those things. God wants you and sees you as his child. Finally, how dependent are you upon God? It is related to the second one. Are you dependent upon God enough that you bring him your concerns, small or great? Before you act, before you do anything at all, do you consult him? When you fail, do you go back to him and admit to him that you failed and ask his forgiveness? When there is a need that you have that is beyond anything that you can do to deal with, do you go to him and ask him for his help? How dependent are you upon God? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you that you were delivered over into the hands of sinful men. Not because you had committed a crime, not because you deserved any punishment, but because you had one purpose in your heart and in your mind only, and that purpose was to deliver us from our sins. God, thank you that many of us here can testify that we have been freed from sin. We have been made right with God. We are your children. Lord, please allow us to let these words sink deep within our hearts so that they become a part of our DNA, that Jesus is our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name.